verse 10 today. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And it says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the word of God. Amen. So, as I said, this is a continued, continued discussion from, from last week. And to understand the context of our verses today, we must understand that they, they actually flow from chapter 1 and the main point of chapter 1. And if you back up with me, and I, I want to do this as a reminder so that you can keep this um, on your mind in the forefront as we continue to walk through First uh, Peter. It's important for us to point back to this verse because I believe that this verse is pivotal. It's, it's, it's uh, in understanding what Peter is trying to tell us, trying to tell the church. So if you back up to First uh, Peter chapter 1, and let's look at verses 3 and 4. I want to read those real quick, and then that will help place our verses today in context. Um, so the main point of chapter 1 is this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, we've preached through that already. We've covered that. But from that verse, we continue to talk about the implications of our salvation. Peter opens up the letter saying, you God has saved you. He has done a wonderful thing, and it's not because of anything you've done, but he has chose to save you. Even when you were yet a sinner, he has chosen to save you. So that begins our praises, but um, after that, Peter explains the implications that follow. So from that point on, Peter talks about different things that should occur in our lives or that we should be aware of because God has saved us. And the very first thing he talks about is that every Christian is called to personal holiness. Uh, Christianity is not just a confession that somebody makes. It's more than that. It's, it, yes, we must confess with our mouth, but we also, and we must believe with our hearts, but we also must repent from our sins. And, and that's, that's the expectation God has, that we repent from who we used to be, and that every day we grow to be more like Christ. So 
for the Christian, uh, an implication of salvation is that uh, he is called to a personal holiness. We are called to be a reflection of the Lord that we follow. And Peter continues, and, and he also talks about not only a personal holiness, but he talks about how we should appropriately worship God. We've been, you've been here as we went through Exodus. We went through tw- the first 20 chapters of Exodus, and we talked about the law and how the law and the purpose of the law was to align us to worship God appropriately, adequately. This is the way God wants to be worshiped. So in the New Testament, that does not change. God expects his believers to worship him. He saved us. Therefore, we should worship him as our Lord, as our God, as the God that he is. So there is appropriate worship that needs to take place from us. Um, And then Peter speaks of brotherly love, that we should have a brotherly love between one another, that the love that we have between each other should be different than the love that we have for the world. And, and the love that we have for each other is, is for the building up of, of, of Christ and his kingdom. So there is to be a, a brotherly love between the members of his spiritual household. But then Peter goes into talking about since we have been saved, and this, were, this is where we get into uh, the verses that we have here before us. Since we have been saved by God, now the implication is that we are members in a spiritual community. We're not rebels anymore. We do not wander this earth alone, but rather we have come united in Christ. And, and now as his church, there is the implications that we worship God together. It's not, well, I'd like to do it this way and you do it that way, but rather it's let's worship together according to the way God has prescribed to us in his word. So, those are the implications. And last week, uh, in speaking about being members of his spiritual community, last week in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, we discussed the necessity for Christians to grow. That we come to the Lord and, and he saves us, but that's not our final destination. That's not where it ends. In fact, that's where it begins, because from then on comes sanctification. From then on comes growth, spiritual growth that the Lord brings through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we we discuss the necessity for the Christian to grow in their faith as members of God's spiritual community. We saw two distinct things that are necessary for spiritual growth. The first one is that we have as believers, we have a necessity for his word. We, We cannot grow apart from his word. Because that is where we get our meat, we get our nutrients from. That is where we get what we need to understand who God is and what we need to continue in the walk he has called us to. So from his word, we get what we need for life and godliness. So his word is a necessity. It's not something that is just extra. It's not something that we should forget about. And only go to when we need it, but it is pure spiritual milk that we need every single day. So if you have been discouraged about your lack of spiritual growth, I'd like to point you to God's word and ask you, have you been in his word enough? Have you been in his word enough? And if you haven't, then that may be the issue. But that's not the only necessity we have as believers 
There's another necessity that Peter uh, pointed out in verses 1 through 5, and that is the necessity for believers to conform themselves to Christ. So we follow his word, but also we follow his example. He's not only our, our, our Lord, he's not only our Savior, but he is the light. He is the light upon our path. He is the path that we follow. He is the way. He is all those things. So we are called Christians because we are to be Christ-like. And if we expect to grow spiritually, not only do we have to get into his word, but we have to follow his example. We have to bear his image on this earth. Now, from our passage today, we continue to talk about our, our membership in a spiritual community in his spiritual community, but today we're going to learn how, how we've become members of this spiritual community. You see, because there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of churches who talk about salvation and the fact that salvation is in Christ alone. That is a great thing to talk about, but we need to hear more about how we are saved. Because that makes the biggest difference in how we worship God. So today we're going to talk about how we are saved. And, and, I, and I want to make sure and make certain that you understand that this is not Pastor Ricky's personal idea or his opinion about how we are saved. But this is how God says that we are saved through his word. So we're going to talk about how we are saved. But also we're going to talk about what our response should be to that. All right. So here's the sermon summary. The sermon summary is we have been chosen, saved and empowered by God to live within his spiritual community. Let me repeat that. We have been chosen and saved. Excuse me. We have been chosen, saved and empowered by God to live within his spiritual community. Now, there might be the sermon summary behind me and the words by God might be left out because I made that change after I sent it to the group. But it's not a typo. It's not their fault. It's my fault. I'll take the blame for that. But that is what our sermon is about today. And this is what the passage that we read, verses 4 through 10, is about. It's about God's sovereign election. His sovereign election to choose those whom he saves. So I want to start at verses 4 and 5, and I want us to get an understanding of the necessity of Christ. Uh, the Bible talks uh, about him being the cornerstone, and us, his living stone. Excuse me, his living stones. And it says this uh, in verses 4 and 5, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, this analogy of, of the stone is quoted in several Old Testament passages. In fact, in verses uh, 6 through, uh, all the way through 8, we have two examples there that, that are quoted. One is from Psalm 118.22. And then the other one is from Isaiah 28, 16. Both of those are quoted from Old Testament passages. And Jesus also attributed 
this analogy to himself. He did this in Matthew 21, 42. Listen to the words of our Savior. He said, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the Lord himself referred to him as the cornerstone. The word refers to him as the cornerstone, meaning he is foundational to the structure, the structure that is built up in him. And we are living stones. That is applied to us. And the emphasis, it emphasizes our union with Christ. We are living stone because we are united with the living stone. It's a beautiful picture of how we are giving life. Living indicates that the resurrected and living Christ is the source and giver of life. We talked about this a little last week, and I, I want to I say it again because it's very important to the topic that we're speaking of today. From Christ, we get life and we get all things. Remember, I shared with you Acts 17, 28 last week. I told you it's right here on this pulpit to remind me every single time I come up here that it is in him that I live and move and have my being. Because that is true for all of us. It is in him that all things occur because it is by his power, his might, his wisdom, his grace, his mercy, that all those things happen for us and to us. So from Christ, we get life in all things. John 1, 4 says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The passage also says, as you come to him. See, that not only speaks of our initial salvation, but also our constant drawing near to Christ. We have a necessity for Christ because he is our all and all. I, I was reminded as I was reading that passage and thinking about what I was going to say here, I was reminded of the psalm, Just a Closer Walk with Thee. I remember singing that psalm, or uh, not the psalm, but uh, the uh, the song, rather, itself, uh, the hymn, there you go, the hymn. And I remember singing this hymn, you know, years ago, and I loved it from when I, when I first heard it. I remember singing this uh, hymn whenever I had first become a believer, and it helped me to understand the necessity I had or I, ne I needed to have for my Lord. It says, I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus kept me from all wrong, or Jesus keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. Just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea. Daily walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. I would have sang it, but I don't want to do that to you. It's wonderful, wonderful uh, hymn. That, that speaks to our necessity of Christ and our continual coming to him. Not just, not just for, for one occasion, not just for salvation. That in itself is extraordinary. And we are told to come to Christ. 
But we don't stop at that point. He is not only our Savior, but He is our Lord. We come to Him every single day. Because if we want to live this life to please Him, we must and we have to come to Him because we need what He has. So, I wanted to set that up to talk about what we really are here to talk about today, and that is God's uh, sovereign election within his people. Because I wanted us to, to understand in context with what I'm about to say that it is in Christ, it is in Christ that we are a people for his own possession. It is in Christ the cornerstone upon whom the foundation rests, whom the house rests on. We are the spiritual house. We rest on Christ. You remove the cornerstone, the whole building tumbles and falls. Just like Christ says that I am the head of the church, you remove the head, the church no longer lives. He is our all in all, and it is in Christ that we are a people for his own possession. Now, I told you before we got into 1 Peter that, that there are some strong parallels between Peter and Exodus, or 1 Peter and Exodus. And that's the whole reason why I wanted to stop with Exodus chapter 20 and then jump to 1 Peter, because I, I, I continually saw that 1 Peter was, was a great application to what we learn about the law and how God saved Israel and, and how he was, his hands were against the Egyptians. All that was a beautiful picture of how God would interact with the world when Jesus Christ came. So the parallels between 1 Peter 8 through 10 and Exodus are evident here. Listen to Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6. He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I want to read that with verse uh, verses, uh, verse nine and ten. But you are and this is what first Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, this is what they say. But you are a chosen race, race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. And I'll, I'll stop there, actually, just with verse 9. So you can see the parallels that are going on here between those two verses. As in Exodus, there are those whom God has chosen to show his mercy to, and we talked in length about that, how God had chose the Israelites, and he had, cho he had chose to show his mercy in them, even though they did not deserve it, because they continually sinned against him, they continually turned their backs, they continually forgot about him, but yet he chose to save them, he proclaimed them as his people. He gave them faith to believe. So he gave and showed the Israelites mercy. And also we see in Exodus that there are those whom he has chosen not to show his mercy. And we saw that in Pharaoh and the Egyptians. 
It was a stark contrast between the two. When the plagues would come down, they would, they would uh, totally affect the Egyptians. But sometimes we forget that the Israelites, they lived in the same area. And yet, they did not affect the Israelites. God showed mercy to the Israelites, and he showed his wrath to the Egyptians. It was in Exodus that the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. He says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. This was a continual conversation that, that, that God had with Moses. He continually told Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh continued to say, no. No matter how, how powerful the sign was, Pharaoh said, no, no, no. The reason why he said no, no, no was because God had removed his mercy from Pharaoh's heart and therefore, it was hardened to the fact that he would not believe God. He would not believe God's word. He would not believe God's word all the way to the very end. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was God removing his mercy, was him removing his grace from Pharaoh so that he wouldn't believe. That is a picture of a sovereign God. That is a God who is in complete control of everything. But yet, that's not the God that people like to worship. People have a problem when it comes to God's election. People have a problem with God choosing to do what he wants to do with those whom he has created. And the reason why people have a problem with it is because they are looking at it from a creaturely standpoint. They look at God as a creature and say, that's not fair. How can he elect? Well, God is not a creature like us. Who are you, old man, to question God? God is the creator. We are the creatures. And it is completely fair. In fact, we deserve, everyone deserves, everyone deserves hell. Everyone deserves to be outside of the presence of God. But yet in his mercy and his kindness, he gives grace. So we see him hardening Pharaoh's heart. We see him removing his mercy from Pharaoh so that he wouldn't believe. And we see that he does the same to those who don't believe now. This is exactly what Peter is getting at. Here in chapter 2, this is exactly what he's talking about. For those who do not embrace, embrace Christ, he is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to them. And scripture tells us that this, this is according to his will. That it doesn't happen accidentally, this is according to his will. 1 Peter 2.8, it says they stumble because they disobey the word. 
You see what I mean about spiritual growth? The word is necessary for us to grow when we obey, when we don't obey God's word. Excuse me, when we don't obey God's word, we stumble. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 1 Peter 2.8. And just like, the, uh, just like with the Israelites, Peter explains that God has chosen to remove his mercy from those who do not believe so that their hearts are hardened. And this is what they were destined for. This verse does not sit alone. This verse is not isolated within, uh, within the Bible. It's not isolated within the Old Testament or the New Testament. In fact, this verse is very consistent with the way God saves people. When we talk about the, 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 God, the process of God saving people, the theological term for that is soteriology. It's the study of salvation. And God is in control of that. There is a picture painted of God that, 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 is, that is wrong. And that picture painted of God is this God that is just hoping that you come to him, hoping and praying that he, he can't do anything about it. He just sit there and he just hopes and prays that you come to him and he just wants you on his team because you're so important. You, you bring so much to the table and he could just use you so much if you would just come to him. That is a misconception about God. God waits on no man. Doesn't need to. He is sovereign. He is the creator. How dare we think that he's waiting on us? Jude 1 4 says this, and I, I want to give you a couple of passages that support what I said, what, what the verse says in, in 1 Peter 2 8. Jude 1 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul from Romans chapter 9 verses 22 and 23. What if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And I hope you can, you can pick up where I'm emphasizing. God is in charge of our salvation. The Bible is clear. You see, the, what I preach to you today, it's not very popular. In fact, I myself and, and, and those who, who, who teach here have come under fire because of it. That how dare we say that God is sovereign? How dare we say that he is in control of our salvation? How dare we say that God elects?
I have no problem with that, and I know that the men who teach with me have no problem with that because we know in our hearts and our conscience is clear that the Bible is the one that says this and not us. You see, either he is continually drawing his sheep nearer to him, or he is casting out those who are not his. Those who are not his do not obey him because they do not hear his voice. Our Lord said that himself. You don't hear my voice, you're not from my flock. See, they do not hear his voice because they don't have the spirit. They can only get the spirit if God gives it to them. They only receive the spirit through faith. Well, faith is not born up in us. It it doesn't develop in us. Faith is given to us as a gift, the Bible says. So that no man may boast before him. The Old Testament Israelites, they foreshadowed God's salvific plans for his people. That's why I bring them up in today's sermon. That's why I want us to look back. God doesn't change. He's consistent throughout the whole Bible. This is how he saves. And he was painting a picture for us today in the Old Testament of how he would save through Jesus Christ. He, as the the sovereign God, has chosen a people for his own possession as vessels for honorable use. We, we who, who, who sit here today, and I love what Peter says in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 3, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, we who have tasted that the Lord is good are vessels for honorable use because he has chosen to display his grace in us. He has displayed his grace in us with the fact that he has made us his. The election of his people is not only for salvation, though. We need to understand that it is also for service. The Bible says that in his heart, man plans his ways, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. The Bible also says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. That means he made us. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. He made us for a purpose, with a purpose rather, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's to all those who believe. That's to all those who belong to this spiritual community of God. We are made by him for a purpose. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And these good works, God, he didn't hope that we did them. Rather, he prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. See, when I started thinking about this, this is completely astounding. I started thinking about this in my own life. God didn't hope that I was going to be a pastor. He didn't hope that I was going to preach his word. God gave me that desire to do those things. What you do for the Lord today, he didn't hope 
that you did that. He gave you the desire to do that. God has chosen to save you and then to use you as the verse says in verse as the bible says in verse 9 that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light you see he not only called you saved you he not only chose you for salvation but he chose you for his work now that we've talked about it, now that we've, we've talked about God's election, sovereign election, let's talk about an application here for us today. When, when we stand here before God and we recognize that we were sinners and yet God saved us and it wasn't because of us and there's nothing that we can offer him and that everything that we do is because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once we understand that, then we understand that we serve a giving God and we must be a grateful people. First Peter chapter 2, verse 10 says, once you were not a people. That's talking about when we did not know the Lord, when we were not in his grace, when we chose to be an enemy of his so it says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a people of God because of God. And, that, and for that, we should be a grateful people. He has chosen to show you mercy and to save you from his wrath through Jesus Christ. Not only has he chosen you, but he has empowered you to live for him. As I, if you heard me say before, you don't have to serve him, you get to serve him. The days that I sit up here in this pulpit and beg for people to serve him are over. I told you that several years ago. Those days are over. I no longer beg people to to, to serve the Lord. That is reserved for those who get to serve him. I don't have to beg people for something that should be held in honor. I don't have to beg people for anything because I know that the spirit of the Lord will direct them to do what he has destined them to do. It has helped me tremendously as a pastor. Tremendously it has helped me. It is such a great relief to know that that's not, I don't control that. God has given me a calling and that calling is to preach and teach his word with, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's going to do his work. No matter what, he's going to do his work. Because right now, even as you are listening to me preach, right now, you either like me or you hate me. But it's okay. It's okay. The Spirit is doing his work, one way or another. 
One way or another, he's, even, he, he's either bringing you to him or he's pushing you away. One way or another. I, I don't have to worry about it. I just give the word faithfully. That's what I have to worry about. I'm reminded of a mason. We're talking about building a spiritual house. I remind, I'm reminded of the work of a mason and, and his bricks. I was very fascinated with the mason that we had at our house and the work that he did. It, it, was, it was just him and his wife, and, and they worked so diligently. Those stones that they had, are, are, they're, they're so heavy to carry, and yet they worked so diligently, so consistently, and, and the work they did was, was great. But as, I, as, as my wife and I, we watched them work, it was, it was fascinating because here you go. This is how they deliver the stone to our house. There's a big old dump truck, and they just lifted it up, and boom, you had a huge pile of stone. Huge pile. Rocks of every shape and size and, and weight and, and dimensions, and it's just piled up there. And here comes the mason, and he comes and he looks at the stones. He chooses the ones he's going to use. Pulls them out. In fact, he gets them, and he, he grabs them, and he puts them on the side of the house. He kind of sets a pattern on how he's, going to, how he's going to place them. How he's going to place them in their spot. But I, I recognize that immediately, how it was his decision his choice to choose the stones that he felt that he knew were going to go on the house. So after he chooses his stones, well, it's not done yet because they're, as I told you, the stones are in different shapes. They're in different, uh, uh, they're different weights, different sizes. Well, he has a chisel. And as he's placing some of these stones on there, he's chiseling away at them. He's chiseling away at them and he's designing them fitting them for their purpose. And as he sits there, he chisels away, he gets one, and he puts it just right in his spot. And from what I saw, he, he, it, was, it was amazing to see how, how he didn't make any mistakes. He just went there and he just boom, boom, boom. If he made mistakes, I, I couldn't see them. I, I'm a novice at, at putting stones up, but he quickly covered them up if he did make mistakes. I don't want to relate that to God because God makes no mistakes. But here is the mason that I saw. He chisels them and he fits them for purpose. And then once he does that, he binds them together. He uses mortar to bind them together in the building of the house. And together, the stones, they are arranged in the way he wanted them to be. They are his creation as he saw fit to do. But you know what? There's still a pile of stones just left in my yard. I haven't finished picking them all up. I'm doing it a little at a time because those stones are heavy. But there's a pile of stones that that he didn't choose, that he didn't use for the building of a home. I'm reminded of what the scripture says about God and us. He is the living stone and he chooses whom he wants to save, and with those whom he is, has saved, he has fit us for a purpose. He is building us up into a spiritual house. 
that we may bring praise and honor to his name. Now, as we relate this this passage and also this sermon to Christmas, it's customary for us to give gifts to each other. I hope that everyone in here understands the reason why we celebrate Christmas. If you're in church today and you've been in church, you should know that is. It is Christ. He is the greatest gift that has ever been given to us. And if you understand that God is sovereign in saving you, then you then you begin to understand how precious of a gift Christ is. Without him, we have nothing. You have to remember once you were not a people of God. But because of Christ and because of the Father bringing you to him, giving you faith to believe, you are now a people of God. We must understand that his mercy is truly the greatest gift we have and will ever receive. When you understand that God is sovereign in all things, then then at that point, I think you can adequately worship him because you know you did nothing to deserve what you have. I don't want to end just like that because I want us to consider those who have not come to save in knowledge. As I said, the word is clear how the word directs us and points us to that that, that, is, that, is, God's, that is God's work to save people. We must consider them. We must, we must pray for them. We must acknowledge that we don't know who they are. You see, we do not know who God's chosen are. Only only God knows because that is his business, not ours. He has given us all a commission. He has commissioned us to share the gospel and to be in prayer for everyone that we come in contact with. The belief that God is sovereign does not prevent you from evangelizing. It should not. The fact that God is sovereign should actually promote evangelism within you because you know that it is not your responsibility to convince somebody, but rather you share the gospel with them. The Holy Spirit will do his work. So considering those who have not come to save in knowledge yet, those who have not given their life to Christ, let us keep praying for their salvation and let us continue to take the gospel to them. Let's pray.